So I would say that that showed me that, yes, you're going through hell right now, but there's something on the other side, you know what I mean? And I think that keeps me going because I know no matter how difficult something is, it always ends and you learn from it, you grow from it. It's less about like, oh, moving abroad and uh, starting a business and more about like, how do we get freedom and flexibility that we want so that we can do what we want to do as black women? And how do we get more ownership? From somewhere around the world, welcome to the Black Women Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Wanda Duncan, and I'm so glad you're joining me as we explore the paths of Black women who've made travel a large part of their lives. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you please tell us your name, where you're from, your current location, and the name of your business? Awesome. So thank you so much uh, for having me on. I'm really honored to, to be a guest on your show. Uh, my name is Lene Green. I am from Bermuda originally, but I've lived in over seven countries. I'm currently living in Tokyo, Japan, and um, the last thing was my business name. So uh, I run an organization called The Gold Standard. So your travel journey has been absolutely fascinating. Even before you moved from Bermuda, your original country, like you had an opportunity to do a study abroad in Venezuela mm-hmm. when you were in school, right? Yeah, I did. Um, and it was something that Believe it or not, it was very popular in Bermuda. So first of all, Bermuda is a very, very tiny island. It's like 21 miles, right? So, um, and it, it's a pretty wealthy country. So we have the ability and the, and the privilege and the means to be able to travel. So Bermudians have been traveling since very young. Like I was six when I went on my first trip. My sister was two the first time she left the country, right? It's very normal. Um, and so study abroad was really a way for us to expand our minds, being somewhere that's you know, 20 miles long, it, it it can get boring and you just have such a small mindset um, being from there and never being exposed to something for a, a long period of time. So study abroad was really popular. Um, and back then it was through an organization called Rotary. Um, and yeah, they send you where wherever there's space and then someone comes to your house in Bermuda. So it was, it was definitely a, a very interesting experience. It was so interesting. Like I, you wanted to actually leave. <laughs> you were like, I'm not used to the poverty here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So like I said, um, I'm from Bermuda and like Bermudians are, we are very spoiled, um, you know, wealthy countries. So to see poverty, like, like I went from, um, you know, a country that had a really, really low unemployment rate and things like that to a country that was drastically um, impoverished and no fault of their own. Um, so you see like extreme poverty. And and then the difference between, let's say, Bermuda and even to the U.S. and other countries, the U.K. even, um, to um, Venezuela was that there's stark differences in income. So Bermuda, you know, more than likely the majority of the people are middle class. There is no middle class. When I went, there was no middle class. You were either extremely rich or you were just very, very poor. Um, and so it was difficult to digest. Like you would see people on the streets, um, like juggling balls for money. You would see homeless people on the side. And I, I've seen homeless people before, obviously, but not in these numbers. Um, there was a different level of, of um, 
crime and violence and danger that I had never been exposed to. So that was very, very difficult for me. Um, but, but aside from that, um, it was a language barrier. I didn't speak Spanish. I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. My host family was like very different culturally from me. Um, and so I just kind of struggled to find my footing and, and figure out where I fit in. And, and I really didn't enjoy it. So I remember about two months after I got there, I had like packed my suitcase um, and called my mom and I was like, I'm coming home. <laughs> and she was like, um, no, you're not coming home. And I was like, but I'm so ready. And, and I'm glad that she told me no. And I think because she realized that it would was, was going to be difficult, um, but she knew that if I left, I would re- regret it. So um, she, she made a deal and she was like, okay, you can, if you can stay until Christmas, if you still want to come home at Christmas, then we'll figure it out. And I think it was around the end of October this time. So I knew I only had like two months. Um, but Christmas came and Christmas went and I started to meet new exchange students. I started traveling. I started learning the language. Um, and so the experience became a lot more interesting um, and a lot more fun than I initially thought it was going to be. So I ended up staying. You said that that was such a valuable lesson that your mom taught you by telling you no you're staying there and like negotiating with you you said it like really set you up to find strength within yourself to make something work um yeah like you use the word like spoiled or like i guess it's like privileged like it helped you to unseat yourself from that i guess you could say a bit to really like experience something new yeah um yeah it was it was a a, probably the most difficult experience in my life i think for me um and so (laughs) once i went through that like it was complete culture shock completely different everything that i did um once i got through that there was no other international journey that would have been difficult like right after i left venezuela i moved to toronto and that was like a breeze because obviously I was used to North American culture and things like that, but it was, it was just one of those defining moments where it was like, if I can get through this, I can literally get through anything in life. And so um, I kind of had a spirit of like, um, yeah, like I could get through anything. Nothing seemed that difficult. And still to this day, like if I remember the way that I felt, like I've been doing a lot of like breathing exercises and stuff. And so if I remember how I felt like in my stomach and in my chest, like I've never felt that intense pain before. So it's just everything else in life seems to be a breeze now. And you speak so highly of your parents in general for just being your homies. Like, <laughs> like you seem you seem very close with them. Um, like yeah. you appreciate your mom, but you seem like to be kindred with your dad. That's what it seems like. Yeah, I think so. If I'm being completely honest, it was a lot of internal work that I did. Uh, in my late 20s, um, because obviously no one's relationship with their parents are perfect. But um, I had a lot of internal conflict because of certain things that happened in my childhood and the way that I was um, raised and the things that I was exposed to. And they exposed me to a lot of really interesting and cool things, but they were really young. They were like 18 and 19 when they had me. So number one, we're close because we literally grew up together. And number two, you know, obviously they're going to make a lot of mistakes. Um, so I, I did go through a period of like therapy and like a lot of internal work to get to the place where I focus more and I recognize the sacrifices and the progress that they helped me to make in my life. But um, it was a journey. And I know this is like 
kind of unrelated, but I think that a lot of us, uh, b- black millennial women, men, whoever, we really should focus on like going through that journey of um, growth through through therapy, through meditation, whatever it is, to get to a point where you can accept, you know, all the flaws of someone. So yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because it was it was a very long journey to get there. <laughs> I mean, that's the stuff that like we don't have access to, though, right? That's the part of the story we don't get to see. Um, yeah, I just saw where you said about your dad that yes, you don't think that you would have had the grace that your parents would have had at such a young age, raising yeah. kids and like growing up with them the way you did. But you yeah. said about your dad, you said he's the reason for my spirit, my energy, my intelligence, and if we're being real, my attitude. <laughs> it's so true no definitely so my dad is um arasta arastaman um so he has a very like chill spirit and um it's funny because my parents are like polar opposites my mom is very she's a very academic professional one like get things done pursue your career and my dad is very spiritual and philosophical so we would have conversations about you know um, your spirit and energy and, um, you know, living in the moment and things like that. And so he's the reason why I kind of, you know, focus a lot on energy and focus a lot on how things feel to me um, and why I'm so interested in exploring, you know, why I'm so interested in learning more about people's cultures and how they do things and why they do things. But he he also did have a, a bit of an attitude. I think I had that same thing. You come from like, a medium-sized family like you have three sisters yeah. and two brothers what was it like and and so the, and funny the age difference is kind of big too yeah like so i like i told you like my parents were super young when they had me um so they were like 17 and 18 when my mom got pregnant um and so they had me and then a few years later they had my sister um, and then they got divorced. They kind of separated because you got to imagine like 18 years old, like, you have no idea who you are. So they ended up getting married. Um, but then they just kind of grew into the people that they are and they realized, hey, we're not going to work out together. So they kind of separated and then found, I think, the partners that fit with who they were once they matured and things like that. So then obviously they wanted to start a family with the people that they're with now. So that's why there's such a big age difference, just because they started so young. And then by the time they um, were settled and ready to start a family, I would say like mid thirties, um, I was already 20. <laughs> so um, that's why the age difference is, is so big. And um, yeah, they just kept having kids. Like they said, it was me and my sister. And then my dad had a daughter. My mom had a daughter and my dad had a son. So it just kind of, um, if you separate the family, it's, it's not so much, it doesn't look so like, it doesn't look like a lot because there's six of us, but there's four in each, in each side. And then two of us have the same, uh, both parents. How has that been? I think that's like fairly common with black families, but like, what's your experience been? Um, to be honest, I was so, I was already like, so I would, I, I don't know. <laughs> like, it wasn't as though there were six of us in the house at the same time, right? Because by the time my other siblings were born, like my sister was born, I was like in Venezuela a year later, right? So I was already out the door once they started having the second family. Um, so for me, it was never really, a, I don't want to say a burden, but I, we didn't necessarily grow up together. So like, obviously Christmas and Thanksgiving, 
or um, whatever holidays we have in Bermuda. And then, um, you know, we'll text now. They're older now. So one of my sisters is, is on our way to college now. Like, we'll text then, call each other, and FaceTime and stuff. Um, but we didn't really grow up together. The only person that I grew up with was my sister, Corey. Um, so we were always connecting on just kind of like, we had literally the same childhood, so we could connect on that level. But my my other siblings were so young. Like I said, I was 20 when my brother was born, 15 when one sister was born, and 16 when the other was born. So I was like gone, you know? I wasn't really involved in the day-to-day family dynamic situation. Um, but what I will say is, you know, I, and I don't know about your your family structure, but like my parents are tired, you know? So there's things that... I would never get away with and they just get away with it so easy. And I'm like, y'all are getting away with murder. Like you don't know your parents, you don't know your parents from like 1996, 1997. You don't know those people. <laughs> so yeah, I definitely think that they get away with a lot, a lot more. Uh, so I'm, I'm <laughs> the youngest of 10. Uh, so you're, you're the baby. You're the one that gets away with everything. Then. Or I just work my ass off and uh, <laughs> I, she didn't really have to worry about me because I wasn't trying to do, nothing but you know go to school and be a nerd so okay <laughs> it's not like I had a car and stuff like that uh while right living, you know what I mean um mm-hmm. but there are five of us with the same mother and father and then okay yeah so the rest have different fathers but it's all the same mother but okay. so yeah that is very interesting that whole what you're saying like how you're related, but you didn't grow up in the same household. We've never called each other like half or step or whatever. I, I guess it'd be half in my. Right. Yeah, we don't do that either, actually. Um, people ask, like, so, because both my step parents are white. So when you see my siblings, they're like, so how did this? Because <laughs> me and my sister look the exact same. Um, and then my brothers and sisters, they look alike. They're not even related, they're like on other sides. So people are like, so how did this happen? Like what? And then I'm like, well, these we have um, either we have different mom or we have different dad, but we don't really say the step part or the half part. Right. So you did the whole Bermuda thing growing up there. You started your your first trip was that Venezuela, like on your own? My first trip? Um well, like your first segue into like travel i guess you could say not like family trip oh no not really so yeah bermudians like i told you bermudians we are always on the go so my first trip was uh without my parents was with a we call it a girl guide so it's like the british version of the girl scouts because bermuda's a colony um and uh we we went on a cruise we went on a cruise to caribbean i think which is weird because we were from Bermuda. Why are we going on the cruise to the Caribbean? Anyway, and then uh, <laughs> after that, so with my high school, we didn't go and like, so Bermuda is very small. So field trips, weren't. we didn't really have anywhere to go. Where are you going to go on 20 miles? So our field trips, we, we, we used to go to D.C. So we went to Washington, D.C. Um, and then we did a, a trip to Whistler, Canada for like a ski trip. And this is high school. So like I, traveling has been in my life for that long. And that's, those were like my first trips about my parents. And I think first time I went on a trip without them, I was like 12. Um, and then the ski trip was like 16. And then Venezuela was the first time it was like solo travel. You know what I mean? Like completely on my own, no organization behind me. No one like helping me, no one speaking uh, English. <laughs> so that was really interesting. 
Speaking of Bermuda being a colony, you have a a European, like Eastern European Union passport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got that like the whole time. <laughs> oh, yes and no. So, I mean, so Bermuda is, we're still a colony, right? So we are technically born with dual citizenship. We're born as Bermudians and we're born as uh, UK citizens. Um, and so I didn't actually get my UK passport until I was like 25 or 26. Um, and the only reason I got it was because I was moving to Europe and it would have been a, no, I got it even before I moved to Europe, I was going on a trip, a work trip to Malta and, um, it would, it, the whole process would have just been easier if I had a, my British passport. So it's the only reason I went and got it. And then I, I didn't even get it in time. So I, I still had to use my Bermudian passport when I went. But yeah, so Bermudians are born with um, dual citizenship. It makes um, travel and international living a little bit easier, for sure. It seems like a lot of it. Like, yeah, so many people are trying to figure out the whole Europe part and like, you don't. Well, I do now. So I didn't at the time. So when I decided to move to Europe, it was really like you just pull up and just say, like, I live here now. Like, I literally went to, um, it was funny, I just went to Amsterdam and I showed them my passport and they were like, cool, like, and just let me through. And then they were like, you just have to register and say that this is the apartment that you live at, live at, you know, and there's no, uh, that was probably the first time I lived in the country where I didn't have to worry about immigration. I didn't have to worry about like, someone kicking me out of the country. When I lived in the US, I had that worry. When I lived in Canada, when I lived in Venezuela, even now in Japan, right? Like you're, you're you are on um, some sort of temporary visa. So you have to be cautious of what you say and do. But when I was living in Europe, I was like, what are you, like, there's nothing they could say. What are you going to do? Kick me out of the EU? You can't. So like, I would, I would definitely challenge. I, I would just say what I wanted to. I just had a lot more freedom, I think because I knew that they couldn't do anything to me. They, they really couldn't. So, so you lived, when you lived in, a, in America, you lived in Atlanta, you went to Georgia State University. Yeah. And yeah. you even got your master's there. Yeah, I did, yeah. So it seemed like that was around the time you started your Instagram. Do you remember your very first post? I think it was like a, a club pic. So my friend Paris and I, I think we went out um, to some club. Oh, it was like a, it was like a, a black professionals networking event, and we went out, and I remember taking a picture with her in the bathroom. I think that's either the first or one of the first pictures. But I was just so excited. How do you remember that? First of all, that's twenty twelve. Like, how do you remember that? Like, off the top of your head. Because that Instagram is such like a pivotal. Um, so that time living in the states was so much fun for me, and Instagram was like a pivotal moment of me, like documenting that and i remember i did my hair myself in that uh, <laughs> i remember how excited i was to show it off <laughs> well i'm not i'm not sure about the circumstances but it is it is a photo of you i just like the caption doesn't tell anything about it right. but it just looked like baby you was living your best atlanta life like really would. It, it reminds me of um marty Martinique. Yeah. It reminds me of her Instagram because she kind of kept it. You know, on Instagram, we used to just like post whatever you was doing. Yes. And you just had, it seemed like your friendships were really close. Like, yes. y'all was out drinking. You were vacationing with them. Like, y'all were traveling together, which is like so cute. Um, so, so the thing about Atlanta, right? So I went to school in Toronto first, and this is, this is really important. 
Uh, and I was broke in Toronto because uh, Canada is just so expensive. People don't realize that Toronto is really expensive. And so I was like, all right, I have to move somewhere I can afford. So by the time I got to Atlanta, I learned how to budget. I learned how to like shop like at cheap places. So I had extra money to go out and have fun. And then as a, uh, a woman in Atlanta, like you don't necessarily have to pay for stuff. So I was just really enjoying my life, like really enjoying it. And then um, I ended up having to do an extra year of undergrad. So, I mean, I'm taking undergrad, I have my undergrad degree, but I'm taking undergrad classes. So my life really isn't that difficult at the time. So I was just really just enjoying everything, you know, and just being free. <laughs> I was really free. You were super, super free. That's what it looked like. That's, yeah, it really was. It seemed like it laid more groundwork. Because again, like you're still taking all these trips. First of all, it seems like you've been pretty much everywhere. You've been to like over 40 countries, maybe 50 by now. 42. So I slowed down this year. To be honest, I was tired of traveling. Like once um, once January hit of this year, I was like, I'm so tired of this. So to be honest, I haven't left Japan since I got in Japan. Got to Japan in May and I haven't left. So this year has been really, really slow. Um, from like 2015 until 2000, uh, let's say 2020, January 2020, I was traveling at least once a month somewhere, either either for work or vacation. Um, so yeah, I was always on the go, but this year I just kind of had to just chill. I mean, it's a good year for you to want to do that, <laughs> <laughs> considering. <laughs> that the entire world was set on fire. So good timing for you. Yeah. It also seemed like your time in Amsterdam was really pivotal as well. So yeah, you started a Facebook group there. You co-founded it for Black women in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, when I moved to Amsterdam, I, I was, that was kind of like when I kind of grew up, I guess. This was the first time when I was like in a professional setting, professional career and making money and just kind of being really independent. And I was working for, for a fintech company in Amsterdam and I was the only black person, which doesn't make sense. People don't know this, but there's like 400,000 Surinamese uh, people, I think, in the Netherlands. Um which means, and the Netherlands is a very tiny country, which means that there's a lot of Black people there because that's just Suriname. Then you think about Curacao, you think about Aruba, you think about all the African immigrants from Ghana, um, Nigeria, right? There's a lot of Black people. And then you think about the Black British population and, and the Black expat population, there's a lot. But I was the only Black person at my company. And so I always felt like going from a place, like I had never been to a space that was so white before because... Um, I had lived in Toronto, which was extremely diverse. Like, you know, it's, it's obviously Canada is very white, but Toronto itself is very diverse. Um, Atlanta was black, right? I was born in Bermuda. Uh, Venezuela was mostly Latino. So to go to a place that was very, very white and to go to a place that was the home of the colonizer uh, was a very different experience. And so I felt like I needed community. I needed to identify and connect with other black women uh, and I needed their support and they need my support. So I ended up meeting a group of black women. I would say there's maybe, there was five of us. One I met through her blog. She had moved there before me. So I met her through her blog and then she introduced me to someone else. And then I met um, someone else through an expat group. And we kind of just all came together. There were five of us and we created uh, Amsterdam Black Women. Um, And so there is a Facebook group, but it's so much more than that. We have book clubs, we have uh, brunch, we have um, different events. 
Uh, we sponsored different events around the city. So it, it just became a hub where we could connect as Black women and just kind of vibe and share our stories and share things that, that, you know, the struggles that we're going through, the things that we love about the city, the things that we don't like about the city, you know. Um, so it was really just a great way for us to, to connect and share our stories and support each other. And, and I really don't think that I would have liked Amsterdam as much as I did. Like, I loved Amsterdam, but Amsterdam Black women really helped me to um, enjoy my space. And one thing about the Netherlands that I will say that I haven't actually found in other places is you may not necessarily find your tribe. Like in Atlanta, you know, there's a lot of things for black people to do, obviously in Amsterdam, it's not necessarily there, but there's a space and a freedom to create whatever space you want. Um, and so I'll always respect that from the city. You know, when we created Amsterdam black women, we weren't necessarily met with a lot of um, opposition. It was, it was kind of a welcome, um, a welcome thing. Um, or at least something that they tolerated, that they really didn't, you know, push back on. You said that Black women don't take care of ourselves. We don't know how. We wear our struggles like a badge of honor until we're stressed, yeah. drained, and burnt. Yeah. And you just talk about how much of a support system you have built in Amsterdam. And I think you were reflecting on that because you were about to move to Singapore. I think that's where you were going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So when it comes to, I think it's something that we were taught innately by our grandmas and our, our moms and even great grandmas, right? That if, if you look like you're struggling as a black woman, if you work really hard, like that's, that's the space that we're supposed to sit in. Right. Like if I think about my mom and my grandma, I'm like, Oh my God, I don't know how they were able to do so much. And I know a lot of women that, that think that about their mom, their grandma, like, wow, they were really super women. But then it's like, well, were they happy, you know, or did they hate their lives? Because all they did was work all day. You go to work this job, you know, you're underpaid for it. Then you have to come home and take care of your kids uh, by yourself in a lot of cases. And I just, I didn't necessarily want that for my life. And it wasn't something that it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to do whatever I want because it's something that subconsciously, I think a lot of black women do. We just overwork ourselves because we feel like that's where the pride comes in. That's where, that's where the reward comes. That's what we're supposed to do as black women, right? It's, it's almost like celebrated. Um, and so it's, I think for a lot of us, um, it's a daily, you know, commitment to saying, okay, I'm not going to feel guilty about not washing the dishes. I'm not going to feel guilty about like, you know, not doing the things that I'm quote unquote supposed to do because I want to sleep in or I want to go and have a good evening. You know what I mean? Um, so it's a constant battle between, working hard and not overworking and taking it a step further. Like I'm going to create the budget for therapy or I'm going to try to experience some different healing modalities, like whatever that looks like taking, taking a, a bigger step towards wholeness. Right. Yeah. But you, but you did mention like how healing that, support system in Amsterdam was like, do you still keep in touch with some of those ladies? Are you still active even though you don't live there anymore? Yeah, for sure. So I definitely kept, kept in touch. Um, the women that I started off with are some of my best friends. So we obviously keep in, keep in touch. Um, and then with COVID-19, a lot of the events were put virtually. So it was cool because I could join um, at times that I wasn't necessarily able to. 
um, before. So yeah, we definitely still keep in contact. And every time I would go back to Amsterdam, so I was still working for a Dutch company when I moved to Singapore. So I, I would go back every two or three months. And so um, I would just, you know, join the events and, and things like that. So yeah, I'm still pretty close with a lot of the women that are running Amsterdam Black and Marino. So then like you got a gig with booking.com and you were able to split your time between Singapore and Japan. Yeah. So actually when I, um, when I moved to the, moved to the Netherlands, I was working at a FinTech company and two years in, I, I moved to booking.com. So I had already worked there for two years in Amsterdam before I moved to um, Singapore. So it was kind of like an in, in, intercompany transfer that actually almost didn't happen because I actually got a job. And so my husband lives in Japan at the time he was my boyfriend. And the idea was that we would move together. Um, and so I ended up getting a job in Japan, but the salary was like half of what I was making, but I was still trying to leverage that offer for them to like move me to Japan. Um, but they were like, what if we move you to Singapore? And I was like, cool, let's make it happen. Um, and so that's kind of how Singapore came about. But yeah, so because my husband was living here in Japan, I would, um, and this is what I mean. I was traveling a lot. So I would be in Singapore and I would come to Japan once a month. Um, and it's a seven hour flight. Like this is not an easy flight. And then seven hours. And then I don't know if you've been to, to Tokyo, but Narita airport is far away from anything. So seven hours in a plane, you have to get off the plane and then get on at least an hour train ride to get anywhere inside of the city. So it, it was, it was a lot for, and I did that for about a year, year and a half. Um, but y'all were dating at the time. Like y'all weren't married yet, right? No, we weren't married. You were not. <laughs> what what do you what do you say to women who are exploring relationships while being such an avid traveler? <sighs> um, I don't know how to answer that. Everyone's relationship is so different, right? Like I would need a I would need like a scenario to be able to answer it. So y'all met in Turkey, like presumably while you were traveling. And it seems like y'all just kind of kept in touch over the years. Yeah. So we met in Amsterdam. Um, We met at a club in Amsterdam. And um, it was from that day. And we were kind of like on a friendship thing. So we met and then we ended up going to brunch. And we just had a really good conversation because um, we had missed, like I, I had lived in the South, obviously, and I was from an island. Um, and so I was, I missed the kind of black Southern banter and he was, he's from Charleston. So he, Charleston kind of has Island vibes and he's from the South. So I think he missed that connection as well. So we kind of just, you know, joking around having a great conversation and it was kind of on a friendship thing. And we both like, I had been traveling for years and he had kind of just started his traveling journey. So he was like, if you ever want to go on a trip, let me know. So um he was like i think a week later he messaged me and was like hey do you want to go to turkey so i was like cool yeah i'll go to turkey um and then i just remember like when he asked me i was i was actually on my way to a party called um jam rock it's a it was like a reggae dance hall party in amsterdam and i was completely wasted when i said yes so the next day i'm like oh please don't like i hope he forgets and then he sends me like a screenshot of his ticket and i was like okay well i guess i gotta go to turkey so <laughs> I ended up landing in Turkey um, and I saw him and it was, it was, it was almost like we had known each other for our whole lives. Like we just instantly clicked and we've been inseparable since that day, like since the day that I saw him at the airport in Turkey. So it had nothing to do with the fact that he's like nine feet tall in chocolate. 
No, I mean, I mean yes. practical about it, but like. <laughs> yeah, he's fine. He really is. Um, I think that was part of it. Like, obviously, you have to be attracted to someone, but there's so much, so many attractive people in the world, you know? Are there? That I just, I didn't necessarily think that, like, that was obviously one of the things, but it was his spirit and it was just like his, his, um, his, he was, he's very intelligent, extremely intelligent. He's funny, so funny. Um, and he treated me really, really well. Like after we got, after we left Turkey, I went back to Amsterdam, he went back to Germany. But while we were in Turkey, I didn't know this, but he had like ordered flowers. So when I got home, it was like a bouquet of flowers at my door with like a note and just stuff like that. You know, like he's very romantic. Even just this weekend, we went on like a little getaway and it was just a really great time. So like, obviously, uh, attraction has one thing to do with, but like, he's like my best friend. We, we like a lot of the same things. He's super supportive. You know, he's hilarious and his spirit is just like really, really warm. He reminds me a little bit of my dad when it comes to like his spirit, you know, like he, he's very big on energy and protecting his energy. But his job, like travel is not as flexible as how you prioritize it or how your, no. your work situation. So like you exactly. ended up having to, to make a lot of the sacrifice, like what you were saying, in order to keep yeah. the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And he always says like, his, and I, I guess I believe him, um, but I'm not that way. So he says, you know, for him, we don't necessarily have to see each other for, for us to be together. And I was like, cause he was like, well, I know I love you. Like, I don't have to see you to know that I love you. And I'm like, well, what if I just decide like, you know, I'm just going to break up. And he was like, no, like, <laughs> That's your business. You know, you can break up if you want to, but I'm not breaking up you. So I really do think that the distance wouldn't have been a, as big of an issue for him as it was for me. And I think that has a lot to do with being in the military and having it ingrained in your mind that you are going to be separated from your family for long periods of time. Whereas for me, I've always, even though I've traveled, it was I'm doing what I want to do and I'm where I want to be right now because I want to be here. See what I mean? So we had completely different mindsets. And for me, I knew I had done long distance relationships before and I knew it wouldn't work unless we were as close as we could be at the time. Um, and I just knew, you know, even even after the dating phase, even when we were married, I knew I was going to have to be the one to sacrifice uh, my career and um, my job and, and my location to be with him. It, it was just we just knew that that's what it was going to be. You know, both of us make certain sacrifices and that was one that there was no getting around that. How do you feel about that? Um, it doesn't bother me. I don't, I don't feel any way. I think each relationship has sacrifices, right? Like you make sacrifices for that person. They make sacrifices for you. Um, so it didn't feel like a sacrifice. Actually, it felt like, all right, well, this is, this is what we have to do to stay together. And this is what we're going to have to do. Right. And there's other areas of the relationship where he feels like, okay, this is what, this is what you want, then this is what we're going to have to do, you know? So um, it's a give and take. And I would never tell someone like, well, you should just move somewhere. You should just move there for your partner and make that sacrifice because it really depends on your unique um, story, your what you stand for and what you, what you want to tolerate and what you don't. There are some people that would never move to be closer to a guy. And I completely understand that. Because that's who they are, and they're not willing to make that sacrifice, and that's fine. So for me, it, it really just depends on you know who you are and what you want from your relationship and what you're willing to give up. 
Right. And like speaking of sacrifices and also like referencing something you talked about before in the conversation, um, culture shock is something that you've had to deal with moving between countries. Yeah. How, how have you been able to navigate that? Like I said, you know, nothing will ever be as difficult as Venezuela. So I think the first thing is like remembering, like you'll never be that um, depressed. Cause I, I went through a period of depression for probably about, you know, three or four months. Um, like I would wake up, forget where I was and like be happy. And then as soon as I remember where I was, I would just feel like this heaviness in my spirit and just be really sad. And I remember um, having that same emotion in Toronto, even in Atlanta, in Amsterdam, everywhere. Um, I think maybe except for Japan, just because I have been here so often, I think it just didn't set in. But I think for me it was identifying and knowing what it was. So like being like, okay, for the first two months, you're going to feel some slight anxiety, some depression. You're not going to want to go out there. Like it, just recognizing that those emotions are because of culture shock, right? And those are the things that you're going through because that's what it is. So just knowing what it is um, and then getting yourself out there, right? So I'm, I, I'm intentional about meeting people, saying yes to different events, um, learning the culture, um, and just kind of embracing the moments of frustration and difficulty because eventually, um, you know, you will get over them. Like you describe yourself even as a homebody as well. So for as much yeah. as you love travel and exploring. Yeah, I didn't really, like, I think, I, to be honest, I think I'm a homebody because I'm tired. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like, um, like I said, from 2015 until last year, I would travel once a month at least, either for work or for personal. So um, I think I, I didn't necessarily spend a lot of time in one place. And I think coming to Tokyo... And even in Singapore, to a large degree, have the opportunity to like not have to worry about my next trip, my next flight. Like it really just gave me a sense of peace. I just don't want to go anywhere anymore. Like I just want to be in my house, uh, and I feel like I can be here forever. Just because I I just feel a little bit burnt out from traveling. I think I think that's where it came from. Well, if it wasn't for work, which like I guess that's kind of mandatory, why were you taking those personal trips? Vacation. So um, Europe is very small. And so um, it's easy to go like three hours on a train here in Paris, two hours and you're in Brussels, right? Um, Brendan lived in, when we were dating, he actually lived just across the border. So he was like a two hour train ride. So I would go there on the weekends. Um, London was a 45 minute flight away. So there's so many different opportunities to explore and see different things. Um, we went to Portugal for a weekend. We would go to different festivals around Europe. You know, we went to Dublin. We went to um, Paris for Afropunk. You know, just so many different things to see and do. Um, and then I will go and visit my family. We would visit his family. Um, I would visit my friends' families. You know what I mean? Um, and it was just kind of like, well, let's just see you know, what we have going on. But what happened was um, because I had built a lifestyle around travel and because my job involved a lot of travel, I kind of like, it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I kind of got myself into a space and a, a career where travel was mandatory. So I had to travel. So um, when I was in Europe, I was traveling to Brazil for work. I was traveling to, um, I went to Australia twice, um, all over Western Europe. 
Um, and then when I moved to Asia, it was like Malaysia, um, Vietnam. Like, so I had to go to these places, Thailand. And so I, I couldn't get out of it. Like, it got to the point where it was like, I can't, I can't get out of this unless I quit my job um, because my experience is in this area. And so it just kind of became, I just got, got tired. I think once I hit like 30, I was like, okay, this was cute in my 20s when I had energy. But now I'm just like, ugh. <laughs> I just, just want to lay down in my house and like not get on a plane for a month. It seemed like that tiredness also reached into your professional life. So you talked about like your corporate strategy, how you would enter a room to let them know that you were that bitch, so to speak. <laughs> it's just like you use your code switching, you know, your proper English. You let them know your industry experience. You let them know that you're well-traveled and you just kind of laid the groundwork so that they knew who they were dealing with. And yeah. you describe a specific incident where you didn't do that and you were being mansplained about your own project and yeah. you know, being interrupted. And you say you don't have any problem clapping back. Like, I guess that's the dad in you. <laughs> right. like, <laughs> but you just, But you just didn't want to. I didn't. I was tired. So I'll just take it back. So I had I had gone to private school uh, in Bermuda. My mom was, um, she had worked in the corporate environment and she was just all about professional success. She was like, you need to succeed professionally in order to survive, in order to make decent money, right? So she always pushed, you know, this is how you present yourself in the workspace. She would call it the workspace, but it was really like the white world, right? But at the time, you know, you don't realize that you're just like, all right, this is how I'm going to navigate this working world. Like you code switch, you use different languages, you name drop universities, you you do all of these things, right? Um, just so people, when they see you, the first impression they have of you is, wow, I'm impressed by all of her credentials. Um, and so I use that technique to get job opportunities in Bermuda, in Canada, in the US, and then obviously in Amsterdam. Um, but to be honest, Amsterdam, I think was a place through Amsterdam Black women and just through kind of growing and getting older um, and just becoming purely myself where I realized I just didn't want to do this shit anymore. So um, it started slow, like with me wearing my hair out to work, um, which was like a small thing, but like, imagine like being afraid to wear your hair out to work because what people are going to say. Um, it, st- it started with me like not code searching, um, trying to talk as much in my Bermuda accent, what I was left, <laughs> you know, um, and talk about my culture, talk about the things that I like and not just, you know, things that white people liked, specifically white European people. Um, so it was really just about me being myself. And that's part of the reason why I switched to Booking.com because the company that I worked for before was extremely European. You know what I mean? And I felt like I couldn't be myself. And at Booking.com, I felt like I was allowed to. Um, and so that was part of the process. Um, and so living in Europe, I think I had a lot more flexibility in terms of just being myself and being authentically me. Um, And then moving to Asia, they don't necessarily see black people, right? Or black women. So you kind of, first of all, you're a black person and then you're a woman. So you you stand out and they don't know how to approach you. Um, And so they kind of are taken by surprise when they see you. And they just make assumptions based on, you know, who you, who, who they think you are. So I was going into a meeting with um, a company, a very well-known company, actually. Um, and um, I got in the meeting and I'm the client, right? So we're the client. We go into the meeting and I'm being mansplained my own job. 
And the thing is, um, they were telling me about how to do my job. And then the partner that they were working with was a company that I worked with before, which was the job that I was doing before. And they were explaining that to me too. Um, and, and typically what I would do in those situations was I would take control and I would be assertive and I would show that I know what I was talking about and that, um, you know, I will kind of par or spar or whatever you call it with them in terms of showing my, uh, my intelligence, giving them my credentials, whatever, whatever. But for some reason that day, I was just like, fuck it. Like if they want to, if this is how they want to act and this is how they want to act. So I literally just didn't say anything. I just sat there and I was just exhausted, like literally exhausted. And that was the moment when I realized like, I'm out, I'm out of corporate. Like I'm not doing this shit anymore. If I have to deal with this bullshit, I'm out, like, I'm, I'm done. This is why black women are leaving corporate, the corporate world in droves. That's exactly why. And that's, that's I was leaving anyway, but that there was no way that I would change my mind after that. So it seemed like something had been set off inside you, like the end of 2017, beginning of 2018. So you started two things. You started the Take Flight Abroad, where you were helping people to expat. You were helping people to get the jobs abroad Mm -hmm. and such. But then you also um, started your podcast, The Glow Up Pod, which is now the gold Mm -hmm. standard. Um, And you even had Mm -hmm. a summit last year, October, the Glow Up Summit, an online virtual summit. Um, I would say for me, um, it was really about, you know, Brendan, like I knew he was going to leave Europe and I wanted to make sure that we were together. And I knew that I had to find a way to make money virtually if we were going to, if I was going to be able to move where he was. So that location independent lifestyle really became more and more appealing to me just because I wanted to be with my husband, my boyfriend at the time. And so I was just trying to figure out a way to kind of earn money online, doing what I liked and teaching what I like to teach. Um, And I do want more black women to have the opportunity. It's it's less about like, Oh, moving abroad and uh, starting a business and more about like, how do we get freedom and flexibility that we want so that we can do what we want to do as black women and how do we get more ownership and have these really dope experiences that were never available to us before, you know? Um, but yeah, it was really out of the, the necessity to um, earn money online and then kind of got tired of making other people rich, you know? I wanted to, to try and see if I could do this myself. And you talk about like legacy. Yeah. What, what does legacy, what does that word mean to you? Uh, it just means continuing on, right? And and giving your kid some additional cushion. And this is something that I struggled with for years because, you know, it was it was difficult for me to find money to go to college, go to college, pay for things, and just have that experience, you know, um, because we didn't really have much. I mean, we weren't poor, but we didn't, we weren't rich, you know what I mean? Like, my mom didn't just, like, write a check for my university. And she also went to college at the same time that, as I did. So, um, you know, it was difficult. And I just think that she passed the baton on to me. So if we think about the black family structure from the times of slavery up until, you know, modern recent history, there's kind of been a progression and obviously you see it, but you know, my grandma worked so my mom could finish high school Right. And then my mom works so that I can get to college. Now that I've been to college and I've had the good job, what am I going to leave behind for my child? Right. Um, real estate, 
um, investments, things that are going to help them to pass the baton onto their talent and make it easier. And I think they're having more. And I'm not just saying, oh, we need just need a whole bunch of money because money is good. But I, I believe that money is a tool, right? Money gives you the ability to um, live an easier life. Yes, but it also gives you influence. It gets you in circles that you wouldn't necessarily be in. And it gives you power, right? You don't have to answer to certain people that don't have your best interests at heart because you already have a family business or you already have investments that you can use to take care of yourself to do the work that you want to do. Right. Um, I'm really impressed with one of my cousins. Um, she's been buying property since she got married. Um, I think maybe five or six years ago and they just bought a, um, an apartment complex. Right. And the first thing is like, okay, so this person in the family is going to do the painting. This person in the family can rent out this, you know what I mean? So it's like, she's already keeping that in the family and giving us access to things that are so difficult for us to have access to because they're so far outside of our space. So that for me is legacy, right? It's really just providing a cushion and making, making it easier and giving us more influence and, and access to power. And so that also involves generational wealth like wanting to have a focus on making sure, like you said, being able to leave the next generation more access. Yeah, exactly. Right. So With that, I, I think part of that, that conversation too, is, you know, particularly in the Americas, like how much was taken from us? Like we would build cities, they would burn them down to the ground. Right. Right. Exactly. But with the online, maybe, not as easy to burn down to the ground mm-hmm. so that we can actually start to create generational wealth. Yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I also think because things are documented now, because we are more educated, we can fight back a lot more um, than our than generations before us can fight back. You know, we have the ability to, to, to speak up and to record and to share and to afford a lawyer. And you know what I mean? Like it, it's more and more difficult to keep us out. Also, um, you don't even have to, to show your face, right? Like you can, you can be behind the scenes uh, and no one has to know that you own it. So it's a lot easier to, to do things that way now. So I would have to agree with her. But it is bold of you because like with the gold standards specifically, like you target black women Mm -hmm. and a lot of a lot of people who are in business are afraid to do that still. Yeah, they're afraid to because they don't want to niche themselves down too much. They don't want to. They they like the women of color brand because they can attract more, I, I think, is their line of thinking. Got it. I love it. These are like my ideas about it. Mm-hmm. I think that makes sense. Um, I don't, I don't know what to say. I think everyone has their different um, areas. I, I feel like, I don't know. I, I feel like that's the community that I want to serve right now. It could change, right? It could change it in the future and say, okay, I'm focusing on all women or I'm focusing on um, people. Cause there's other businesses that I plan on starting that will you know, not just be focused on Black women, but just people in general. You had a quote, um, and it was back in the glow up days. It says that it's okay to ask for help. Why do you think that that's something you need to reinforce in people's minds? Yeah, I think like what we were talking about earlier, 
when it comes to us as black women and black people in general, we feel like we have to do everything on our own, right? Like we feel like, um, yeah, we have to, we have to, or, or we're weak if we ask for help or we don't know the answer. It's just not a part of our culture to ask for support on things. And I just genuinely don't think that you can get to where you want to get by yourself. I just, there's no way you can know everything, right? Um, so I think sometimes we forget that it's okay to ask because we, we haven't been taught to ask. We've been taught to, to do everything yourself and be proud of that, that you can do that, right? Um, so I like to reiterate it because I think that's the only way we're going to move forward to get like move forward is by asking for help, especially if you want to start a business. What is the point of trying to figure it out all yourself when there are hundreds, thousands of people who have done it and you can pay them to tell you how they did it? You know, it just makes things so much easier if we were to take away the pride and the ego of, you know, I'm independent. I did this on my own. You know what I mean? I mean, kind of like if you are starting a business, a lot of times people don't have the capital to pay for that quick access because that's what it is, right? When you pay for courses or for consultations or what have you, you're cutting the line, so to speak. These are people who have experience that will help you to move forward faster. So like that's an investment and not everybody has the money to do that. I would challenge that that process. And say, you know, if something happened, God forbid something happened from like a medical standpoint, or something happened from education that like we will go into fifty, sixty thousand dollars of debt just to get a college degree, right? That's an investment. And it may not always pay off. You know, is I just think that there are ways to you can sell things, you can get a second job, you can forego, you know, paying for trips. So there's there's, there's things that you can cut out just to get an hour with someone, right? And then once you get that hour use that to generate income and then figure out a way to make more sacrifices to get another hour. I just think if we, if we tell ourselves, well, you know, some people can't afford it. I just think that tells half the story, you know, because and I, I truly think that a lot of it is not necessarily that people can't afford it. I think it's that they just don't know if it's going to work. So they don't want to invest in it and then it doesn't work. You know what I mean? What has helped you to, because there's so much on the market, what has helped you to make wise investments? How do you know what courses, what conferences, what um, consult consultations? That's a good question. So um, community. So there's a few Facebook groups on um, entrepreneurship and things like that. Um, following people that I respect as business owners uh, in spaces that I, I, I'm interested in. And just kind of seeing what they say and seeing if it resonates. And then also going through my own process and seeing what I'm missing. So, for example, one of the things I was terrible at was marketing, right? So not great at it, but better than I was. Um, and so I knew I needed to find a marketing program. Um, so, you know, I searched for it, found someone that I thought would be really helpful, and it ended up working out that way. But I've worked with coaches that were complete trash. I've, I've spent, I've made really bad investments, in terms of like paying a coach to help me and did absolutely nothing, you know? So it, it's no different from investing in a college degree or investing in a stock market. You do your research, you figure out this person is a good match. Um, and then you make the investment and sometimes it may not be a good match, but that's, that's the risk. Right. And then I wanted to ask you, like, 
the name of your brand, the gold standard. Yeah. What are your goals? <laughs> Great question. Um, so my goals have shifted over the last, I would say, a few months to a year. So initially my goal was to get out of corporate, right? So earn as much money consistently every month to get you out of corporate to help you to earn um, a salary. And luckily, uh, my husband pays all the bills. So like, remember when I was telling you about sacrifices, that's one of the sacrifices he's made, right? You focus on your business and I will handle the responsibility of the bills. So that was my goal, right? Earn consistent money so that you can contribute to saving, whatever, whatever. Um, so once that happened, I had to reassess my goals to figure out, okay, what do I want? So now it's all about um, reducing my costs. So what I want to do for the next year is figure out a way to consistently make um, hit my target uh, revenue every month, but lower the amount of costs that I have over time and then expand my businesses. So I'm introducing a few different areas. Um, business, I would call them businesses. They're more like splitting out things I already do into buckets and then um, also outsourcing more. So once I'm able to reduce my costs, I'll be able to outsource more and uh, be more in a position of delegation um, because one of the things that I also want to accomplish is refinement, right? So I've been able to do a lot of the things on my own up until now, but if I want it to continue to be more and more professional and reach out to more and more people, I'm going to need more and more help. Um, so I'm going to have to reduce my costs to help pay for some additional resources. And let me ask you, Lene, what has it been like for you to travel as a black woman? That's a great question. Um, I think it depends on where, I think it's made me a lot more conscious of, and I would say over the years, it's changed as I've grown into my blackness. It's my opinion has changed. So the experiences that I want to have are different than back when I was like 12 and 13. Right. It's just like, oh, well, this is what you do when you go to Florida or this is what you do when you go to, you know, London. Right. Um, now it's like, OK, what experiences can I connect with in these places? You know, what do I want to see that I'd be interested in, not in what you know mainstream media tells me I should be interested in? Um, I'm also cautious of how I'm, how I'm treated, how I'm going to be treated. So there's a lot more research, I think, that goes into, you know, what, it's, what, what I can expect from the community and how they're going to treat me, I think. Um, but, but I feel like I'm also slightly privileged because I'm small, I'm like 5'2". So I'm also not intimidating. Um, so I, I think that I may not be it may, not, it may be easier for me to, to travel and explore as a black woman than let's say a black man, you know? So I don't, I don't necessarily take that for granted, but there is definitely a sense of awareness of like, okay, your experience in this country may be different. Like for example, China, Ooh, um, it's a very difficult place to be as a black person. That's why I don't go. <laughs> <laughs> I got enough to deal with. Um, do you have any hobbies or interests that aren't about making money? Yeah, actually. Um, I like to cook. I love to cook. So, um, and I, my favorite thing to cook is comfort food. So that's like Caribbean dishes, um, Southern American dishes, uh, Italian. Um, cooking is like, it's a way for me to like uh, create something that can be enjoyed, not just by me, but by the people that I love and care about. So um, I cook a lot, uh, but recently we've decided to make some health changes. So my recipes are changing. So I'm going through like this phase of like 
before, you know, you make the same things over and over, you know, you're going to like it. Now I'm trying all sorts of new things and I'm like, is this going to taste like crap or am I actually going to enjoy it? You know? Um, is it just like an attempt in an attempt to be like healthier? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we've been married almost a year and the newlywed weight was real. Like we really were just like enjoying each other's company. And then we had moved in together this was the first time I was living together, right? So we just kind of was really enjoying each other's company. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we, we, need to, we need to diet, we need to work out. And so we're trying to eat more balanced, I would say. So it's more like a lifestyle change. Like once a week, I'll make, you know, a nice home cook, not home cook, but like a nice, you know, comfort meal. But mostly during the week, it's like very balanced. Do you find that, a bit of a challenge so being well I don't know because he's military maybe you have access to um like the commissary or whatever so you might be able to get some of the stuff you're used to but I just find like shopping shopping while abroad a lot of the things that I'm used to that I know are healthy for me are so expensive because they're western ideas like I, in Asia, I'm in Malaysia. So it's like rice and noodles. <laughs> right. No, yeah, I could see Malaysia being really difficult. Um, I lived in Singapore, right? So, I mean, you're going to find everything you want. There's things that I found in Singapore that I couldn't find in the Netherlands, you know, just because it's so Western. Singapore is not like Asia light, you know, so you're still going to find the things that you really like. But everything is expensive in Singapore. Like, not just, like, the regular food, like, everything. Um, but I think I think the countries that I've lived in were pretty Western. So I never really felt like I was... I've lived in, you know, Canada and the U.S. Obviously, you're going to get everything you need there. But even in the Netherlands, right, like, there's a huge Caribbean population. So they had, like, tail, they had the scotch bonnet peppers and all those kinds of things that I wanted. They... Um, and so you're right here, there is the American store. So I can go to the commissary and still get most of everything. So I never really felt like, you know, I was missing out on anything. Um, I will say it's more difficult to eat out because I'm not a big fan of Asian food, to be honest. So going out in Japan is really hard. Like we have to go to places where there's restaurants, like Western restaurants, because I won't eat, <laughs> you know, so that for me is a challenge, just finding food that I can actually enjoy that I didn't cook myself. So that's also probably why I cook so much because it's like, I, will, I know I like this. Would you mind sharing your self-care practices? Yeah, um, so I would say like around the time, like I would say like maybe 2017, 2018, I started getting really bad um, anxiety. Um, and that's because I was doing too much. So I recognized what, it feels like when I'm getting overworked. And now it's so much that I can like stop myself before I get too far into it. But like, um, I'm starting to do a lot of breathing exercises. So when it comes to like decision-making or when it comes to figuring out like where you are mentally, um, what I did was there, there was this exercise where, you know, you think about a time when you were really upset, really stressed, really worked up. And you think about where you feel things and how they feel within your body. And then you think about a time when you were just like living your best life and you do the same thing. Think about how you feel in your head, your stomach, your chest, your legs. 
And so whenever I'm, I'm kind of doing something that feels that I'm not sure about or if like I feel tired, I kind of just do that exercise and see how close I feel to either the really good thing or the really bad thing. And if it's more towards the really bad thing, then I'll take a break. Like I'll just walk away, close everything. Um, I try not to work on weekends um, because I find that, you know, I, there's so much to do. And you probably know this, but like, there's always stuff to do. But I can come back on Mondays and be re-energized if I'm if I've taken two days away. Um, and then I I enjoy my meals, right? So I don't work and eat dinner. I don't work and eat lunch. I like take that time away to really just have a second to myself. Um, so I think that's those are the things that I've learned how to do. And then also, like I said, delegating things and. And this is not even necessarily just for a business, but like with your partner or um, with siblings, things like that. Just delegate things so that everything's not on your plate all the time. Um, <clears throat> yeah. I would say those are the things that I feel are most important for me in helping me stay sane. Are any of those particularly grounding for you? Yeah, I would say that the breathing exercises are the most grounding. Because um, they help me to stay in the moment, I guess. And so remember that the answer is always within myself, you know, um, so that it helps me to stay focused and helps me to stay energized. Um, but I will say when I was going through like a lot of anxiety, we, we didn't know if I would be able to move to Japan yet. And I was kind of stuck in Singapore. My therapist, she would give me like grounding exercises of like, you know, just really pay attention to your surroundings. Like, and if you're finding yourself getting worked up or worried, look at, you know, this is a silver microphone. I'm sitting in a black chair. Um, the sun is shining, you know, just to kind of take yourself and bring yourself back into the moment. Um, because one of the things that I've learned is like when you're actually living in the moment, there is no worry, right? There's no stress because you're living for right now. It's when you think about your past and you think about your future and the worry starts to happen and the anxiety. Um so I think staying in the moment really helps to kind of keep focused. What has helped you to face the challenges that you've had along the way? That time in Venezuela. I'm not kidding. <laughs> um, it, it really helped to put things in perspective for me. Like it really helped me to um, know what it's like to push through something and come out on the other side. So it wasn't just about, you know, having this dope experience and living there for a year. Like I learned a whole language, you know, like I'm fluent in Spanish now. Um, and I always tell this story because I think it shows that the journey and sometimes you don't actually see the progress. So when I moved to Venezuela, the first night I got to, I was in Caracas for the first night. So I was there and I stayed at this hotel called La Plarera. And um, it was like a family run hotel that my host family in Tachira, they kind of knew about. So I, I went there and it was very stressful because they were asking me to like sign all these forms and pay and all this stuff in um, Spanish. And I had no idea. And I was just in Caracas, like one of the most dangerous cities in the world by myself. And it just, it was just a very, um, very stressful, scary time. Um, and so the next day I got on a flight to my home city and so then a year later when I was leaving to go back to Bermuda, um, I ended up staying at that same hotel and it was family run. So the people that were there, like I, I had met them the last time. And when I got there, I started talking to them in Spanish and like the, they were so shocked that like their mouths dropped. And at first I was like, I don't understand what's going on. But they were like, yo, when you came here, like you didn't know how to say anything. 
they're like, you couldn't even communicate. Like you couldn't say anything. And now like you're speaking fluent Spanish. And that was the first time that I had realized, you know, how far I had come. Um, and, and it wasn't easy. Like it was a very difficult process. And a lot of times I didn't even think that I was learning anything. It was just kind of like, you just go into the survival mode and you're just like, cool, this is what I have to do to survive. But when you're, when you're able to reflect back on like where you came from and the things that you have gone through and you can actually see the progress, um, it was just a really rewarding experience. So I would say that that showed me that, yes, you're going through hell right now, but there's something on the other side, you know what I mean? And I think that keeps me going because I know that no matter how difficult something is, it always ends and you learn from it, you grow from it. So speaking of which, I like to ask guests, how do you like to celebrate? Um, good question. Uh, food. <laughs> I love dessert. Um, travel. It, it used to be travel. I, like I said, I'm taking a bit of a break now. I'm just tired. But it used to be travel, food, uh, maybe a glass of champagne, a glass of Prosecco. Um, just, you know, talking to my family about my successes and us celebrating each other. Um, things like that. Um, when you do explore a new place, like when you were excited about travel, like how how would you get down? I love going to grocery stores, right? Just because I, I like to see a little bit of like what day-to-day life is like. And I feel like when you go to a grocery store, you can kind of see like what the local products are that they have, like what international products they have, like what's the balance between the two. And you get to try different things and stuff like that. So grocery stores are really, and they're always in like, a lot of times they're in like local areas. So you get to see kind of like the local area. I love to find like spaces of color, you know, so like restaurants or um, bars or museums or things like that of color um, where you can learn a little bit about the history um, of that. Um, And I love, you know, restaurants just in general i love eating out i love food i don't know if you've noticed that but (laughs) um and just like exploring from a local perspective i guess just getting an understanding of what it's like to actually live in that place and what are like the really cool spots to to see and to visit so touristy stuff is fun in certain instances but once i've done it like the next time i go like i'll try and do like a lot more of the local stuff there was a photo of you when you were younger, I think it was with your sister and like you had a little piece of food in your hand and you were like, that's very on brand for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think it was like a strawberry or something. Yeah. And I was like, Babe, you saw you saw how happy I was. <laughs> that's me. So food is a big part of traveling for me. Like actually my husband and I we were, we were watching a video um of I don't know if you've heard of Jamaica Food Boss. He's like this um, food tour guide in Jamaica. And we watched the entire video. And, like we literally planned a trip to Jamaica just to go eat, you know, like stuff like that. It's, I just really, really enjoy Cause you can tell a lot about a culture by the food as well. Do you have any song lyrics or a poem that speaks to you these days? I think for me, um, there's a quote that I really admire and it's whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. Right, because it really speaks to your the control that you have over what happens to you. You know what I mean. And obviously, there's there are things outside of our control, but I think that belief, intention, and manifestation are big parts of 
of why people are able to do the things that they do. And I'm not only talking about business, I'm talking about having kids. I'm talking about raising families, getting over different situations, right? I think that quote for me means everything because it's, we are our biggest enemy. We are our biggest critic and we are our biggest roadblock. And it's just a reminder that if you change your mindset, you probably change your life too. Is there anything in particular that's helped you to change your mindset? Like you talked a little bit about going through therapy back in the day, um, yeah. helping yourself through anxiety. Community, I think, um, is really important. So th- there are going to be days where you doubt yourself and imposter syndrome is real, right? Like um, I remember hearing Beyonce talk about um, dropping beyond the Beyonce album with no marketing promotion or anything. Right. And she was just talking about how scared she was and how no one's going to like it. And this is Beyonce and that album was fire. You know? So if, in my mind, I'm like, if Beyonce, Beyonce goes through imposter syndrome, I definitely will go through it at times. You know, you go through these, these moments where you doubt yourself, you feel like you're not good enough, but your communities, I think what's really going to help lift you up, you know, if you have people that you trust, and you can speak to them and, and talk to them about where you're going through and they can remind you um, about how dope you are or what you've been able to accomplish or, you know, they can just support you through those moments and make sure that you don't give up, right? Um, even if you want to. So for me, community is really, really important. Whatever you want to do, if it's starting a business, if it's living in another country, if it's traveling, if it's writing a book, whatever, find that community of people that can support you in the days where you, you can't support yourself. Do you have any tips for women looking for community? So it seems like you formed a lot of relationships over the years and you just nurtured those relationships. But for people who are different and are doing things differently than everybody that they know, maybe. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. So that's typically what happens, right? Like when you want to do something different and then the status quo you, you realize, you look around your circle and you realize that there's not really a lot of people in your circle that are doing that. But luckily, um, because of uh, the internet, you can find your community anywhere. If you want to talk about red high heel shoes, there's a community of people that like to talk about that thing, you know? So I think Facebook groups is a great place to start. Um, Google what it is you're looking for and then community at the end of it, or yeah, use Facebook groups. Group.me is a great place. Um, meetup.com is also great just to kind of find people that are doing the same things or similar things as you, you know, and then just contribute as well. Like we think just because we're starting out that we don't have anything to contribute, but if you're just providing like motivation or momentum to someone, helping them to give, you know, helping give them energy and things like that, then that is also a great way to contribute, right? So, yeah, that's what I would say. I would say start looking online and you don't necessarily have to be in the same place. And right now, I think that's probably the safest option anyway, right? And Linnea, I always like to have guests share. How can listeners support your work? Thank you so much. Um, so you can follow me at, at goldstandard underscore on Instagram. Um, and you can check out our website. which It's being revamped. But you can check out our website at thegoldstandard.co. Um, to find out more information about what we have going on and how you can be a part of our community. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you being on the show, sharing everything that you've learned, going back through your travel memories. (laughs) 
It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Uh, it really, really, really meant a lot. All right. Well, you take very good care of yourself. I'm going to link all of the places that you mentioned in the show notes. And we will see you on the internet streets. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. 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 Bye.